This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics in the Situation Room, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, we appreciate you watching us, whether you're watching on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Mixer, Periscope, uh, the Terrestrial Signal, however you're watching us, we appreciate you being with us and, and making us a part of your day. Big Thursday show today, got a lot to talk about, but as always, what we are going to do is start out with our Alabama coronavirus update. So we're going to go ahead and jump straight into the numbers. Let's look at the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health. Now you will see that we have 7,019 people that have been confirmed with the Wuhan coronavirus. There are 87,196 tests that have been conducted for the virus. Unfortunately, there are 267 that have succumbed to the virus and, and it has ended in death for them. And then approaching and getting dangerously close to the 1,000 mark, 978 hospitalizations since this whole thing started. And we are going to dig into the numbers and exactly what those mean. First of all, just looking at it, there have been 177 new cases since yesterday, and that is something that is actually, it, it has flattened out some, and we'll talk about that here in a second, and let's go ahead and look at the overall cases. For the state of Alabama, you will notice that there is a flattening out there that takes place, but it's very mild. It looks like just a straight line. Unfortunately, the new cases has become more or less business as usual, and for the state of Alabama, this is, you know, pretty common. We've been floating somewhere beneath the 200 mark, and you'll be able to see that here in a second with the uh, with this next graphic, these are the new cases in Alabama, and you'll notice, looking at that, that we've been floating somewhere beneath the 200 mark for the past four days with uh, significantly lower than normal. We had come to where we had started averaging out at about 200 to 250-ish, and if you're looking at the numbers now, we're about in normal territory for us, actually slightly below normal territory, at least if you're comparing us to the week prior to the current seven-day trend. We did have those two big spikes a little bit earlier this week, but things have started to level out and actually are on a downward path as we speak. So there is some flattening out of what's going on here. And there, it is a little up from yesterday, because you'll recall yesterday we had 155, and so there is a bit of an increase but this shows that, in my opinion, we are really more than ready to start getting back to work because we've gotten this thing to where it's it's normal, it's somewhat predictable, and of course there are going to be days in the future where we have a little bit of a spike or, or maybe a little bit of a lull, but overall this thing has gotten to be more or less predictable, and the fact that we are under levels that we at one point were seems to indicate we're on the downward slope of this, that it seems as though Alabama has already more or less peaked. And when you consider that the total number of confirmed cases, and we've been tracking this for a little over a month now, that means a lot of those cases have already recovered. And so it just, it seems like we've gotten, maybe not, 
I hesitate to say that we've gotten past it because that's not realistic. We're still dealing with this thing. It's still an ever-present force. And once we open this thing back up, as I explained yesterday, once we open this thing back up, the cases are going to go up. The deaths are going to go up. Those things are all true. We know that, but we've known that since the very beginning. We knew when we shut this thing down, and this is what everybody told us, now they've started moving the goalpost on us, but... We were told when, when this thing started down, it was to keep us from overwhelming our medical system. It was to make sure that we had the resources available when we were going to need them. Well, we've had a little over a month to do that. Our hospitals are basically empty at this point. UAB is reporting lower levels of hospitalizations than normal when it comes to the coronavirus, and they're at significantly less capacity than they are just on a normal day when we're not shut down. And this is true of hospitals across the state. And remember that it's important to note that Birmingham was the city that was the hardest hit during all of this. And so if our hardest hit city is now saying, yeah, we're, we're basically on the downward slope of this thing now, and we have way more ventilators than we're using, uh, partly because we started stocking up and partly because there's just not that many people in the hospital right now, well, then that means that we're basically ahead of this thing. And I am in no way calling for, let's just all go back to business as normal exactly the way it was back in January or February. That's not what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is it is time to start moving forward on this thing because we're already on the downward slope. We're already starting to move past this thing. And yes, the numbers are going to increase. That's true. The number of cases, the number of deaths... Those things are going to increase necessarily, just like we knew they always were going to as soon as the shutdown ended. But now they're going to increase at a smaller rate and a rate that is manageable by our hospital system and our medical system. So let's go ahead and look at the new tests because that's another big question. Are we testing enough? Well, these are the new tests that have been conducted and you'll see that they are up a little bit. And so over the past four days, we have had a very consistent uptick in testing now there was a little bit of a scare last night and one of my buddies alerted me to this, that it seemed as though a bunch of tests just went away. Like we were down to 20,000 when our number is somewhere north of 80,000 now. And that was very confusing. It must've just been some kind of glitch or bookkeeping error because they're back to normal now. It doesn't seem as though that was anything really to worry about. Testing is a little above average, and the fact that our testing is increasing and we're actually above average as of the past couple of days, and yet our new cases remains low, lower than normal, where we've been under the 200 mark, like I said, for the past four days, that's a very good sign. Because normally there is a bit of a lag, you know, you have a, a spike in testing and then a day or maybe a, two days later, you'll have a spike in cases. Well, that's not been what's happened here. We're continuing to ramp up our testing, and yet we're having a decrease in tests, or sorry, a decrease in positives coming from those tests. In fact, if you're looking at the rate right now, 8% of the people that are testing are getting a positive. You may remember that earlier this month, we were getting rates of 15 on some days. That was rare, but we were getting rates as high as 15, and it would dip down to about 11 or 12, but it never really hit below 10 once we started testing on a regular basis. And now we're down to 8, and, and not even 8 point something, just 8, 8.0. 8 and so we could dip into 7 or 6 within the next couple of days, theoretically, as long as our testing remains high and our 
our new confirmed cases remain relatively low, it just makes sense. We're definitely, or I, I, I hesitate to say definitely because there's been so much uncertainty on this whole thing. I've, I've learned to hedge my bets being in this business for four years now anyway. But I hesitate to say definitely, but every indicator that I can see and every indicator that I have seen over the past week would indicate we're on the downward slope of this thing. Maybe I'm wrong, and that's possible, and I know that once we open it up, we will no longer, at least by the numbers, be on the downward slope of it. But again, that was something that we had always planned for. The The goalpost always was, let's make sure that we don't overwhelm our health care system, now it seems like that we've basically already accomplished that. There are a whole bunch of people saying, no, no, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get p- keep people from getting the virus. Well, well, no, that was never the plan. The plan was maybe to keep people that are especially vulnerable, like our elderly or people with risk factors, by the way, like me, from getting it, and they need to stay quarantined a little bit longer, and I intend to stay quarantined a little bit longer than the general public, and that's fine. But that was the plan was never to hide until eradication or hide until we had a vaccine or a treatment working. The plan was always let's just not overwhelm the healthcare system. And the more data that comes out about this, what the indications seem to be is that the actual fatality rate of this thing is roughly somewhere between 0.2 and 0.6. Now, to put that into proper context for all the people that are saying, no, no, this is just like the flu. Well, the flu's fatality rate is 0.1, which means at the absolute best case scenario, based on the newest data that we're getting, antibody testing from different places in the country, even if we do have something as that's in that range of 0.2 to about 0.6, maybe even 0.7, but, but most likely between those two, 0.2 and 0.6, well, 0.2 is still double what the flu is. And if it's 0.6, it's six times what the flu is. So this is definitely a big deal. This is definitely something that we need to be aware of, and it's definitely deadlier than the flu by at least a factor of two. But let's be honest, a fatality rate of 0.2 to 0.6 for the average person, that's just not something... Well, that's not even really for the average person. That's overall. So if you were to just factor out all the people that stay quarantined, it's even lower than that. Uh, in fact, in in pediatric, the the rate is significantly below 0.0. So if you're looking at, at people under 18, I mean, there have been a couple deaths under 18 in this country, but maybe a couple in a nation of 327 million? That's certainly not something to cause a panic about or, or shut down the economy for. And so the more and more data we get on this thing, the more and more it seems as though uh, we have done a bit of an overreaction, and it's time to start opening things up. Now, granted, the overreaction wasn't necessarily unwarranted because we didn't know all these things when this whole thing started. It makes sense that we got new information and then changed our approach based on new information. That's what science is. You, you take a hypothesis and you take a course of action, and it turns out that that hypothesis was wrong. Okay, let's adjust it. That's what we've done. That's what we ought to be doing. And it seems as though we're dragging our feet a little bit on that. I'm not, again, I'm not saying go back to the way things were beforehand. I'm saying take some steps to start opening this thing back up. Now, uh, another thing that really helps us understand where we are and sort of our status, as it were, 
because these are not lagging or sorry, these are lagging statistics, but they are not ones that are necessarily just subject to testing because the built in excuse to not having more cases is that we're not testing enough. Now, I already showed you that our testing is actually going up and yet our average cases is staying down, staying below the 200 mark, which had become basically the new normal. So let's go ahead and look at this one. So this is the new coronavirus deaths, the deaths that are caused or that happen in patients that have COVID-19. And you'll see that we remain under 20. We're at 18 today. And with the exception of two really big spikes in the 30s that happened last week, our deaths have been fairly manageable throughout this whole thing. And in a state with 4.4, sorry, 4.8 million, the fact that we only have 269 deaths means a very, very tiny fraction of our overall population is going to contract this thing. Now, of course, any death is a tragedy. It's sad to lose anybody. But in the same way that we don't shut down everything in the state for car accidents, which, of course, people die in those too, the, the, the fact that we don't shut down the state for other things is indicative of the fact that when we're looking at the numbers, it makes sense that now we've gotten to the point to where we accomplished our goal. And the thing that's interesting about the debt now the deaths does lag by about a week or two. And so that is important to note. And so watching the COVID-19 deaths, you have to understand you're looking at a snapshot basically of that explains where we were a couple weeks ago. And, well, a week to two weeks. Two weeks is a bit of an exaggeration. But if you're looking at this, the great thing about look or the the great thing under to understand about this is that deaths are not really something that's subject to testing that much. I mean, you have to test whether or not the person died had it, but testing is not going to in other words, if we weren't testing enough, that's not something that would significantly impact because they're going to be testing basically everybody for the symptoms of this thing now. And so we can say with a great deal of confidence that if we're still continuing to see lower than what would be considered about about the norm death rates, then that means, A, you have to keep in mind we're lagging behind a little bit, but B, that that's not something that is a result of us just not testing enough. Now, if we didn't have as many cases, that might be, but th it's pro it's unlikely to suggest that if our numbers on overall deaths are down, that's a testing issue. And let's go ahead and look at this next one. Hospitalizations in Alabama. So if you look at the hospitalizations, this is another one that has remained fairly stable and manageable throughout this whole thing. Because you may recall that if we were looking at the rate of hospitalizations in the state of Alabama and we were looking at how many ventilators we had, how many hospital beds we had, you may recall that I said the magic number that we need to keep it lower than is about 1,600. Well, here we are, and we're barely under the 1,000 mark. And it's important to understand this is not a static statistic. Because when you're looking at, for example, deaths, well, all the people that have died have died. And that's all you can say about that. Hospitalizations are not that way. 
Why? Because the people that you're looking at, the earliest numbers of hospitalizations that you're seeing there, you know, two, three weeks ago, when you're looking at, for example, April 13th, when we started tracking this thing, all those people have either passed on, which means they're no longer in the hospital, or have recovered, which also means they're no longer in the hospital. Because that 1600 mark was not for the entirety of the time we were dealing with this virus, that 1600 magic number we had to keep it under, that meant overall at this one particular point in time. And we haven't even hit 1000 since this whole thing started. So we are managing this actually very, very well, at least from everything that I can tell. And since the hospitalizations are on a downward trend and this isn't a stagnant figure, it looks like we've we've more or less got it to where our hospitals will not be overwhelmed by this thing, even if we start seeing a pretty sharp spike in cases and, and hospitalizations. And uh, again, remember with the hospitalizations, that is one that is largely also immune to just a lack of testing. Because if you're in the hospital with symptoms, they're going to test. If they're anything similar to the symptoms of COVID-19, they're going to test for that, which means that our hospitalizations are something that is not really going to be all that much affected by how much we're testing. And so that gives us probably a better idea of how sick our state is than even the confirmed cases, because we don't know exactly how many people are positive for the Wuhan coronavirus, but not tested yet. The hospitalizations, we can say, pretty reliably predicts about where our state is, and even it is on a downward trend if you're looking at new cases. So one last thing I, I wanted to uh, bring up, that even though these things are, are lagging, the hospitalizations is not going to lag by very much. Because if you do contract this thing, you're probably going to be hospitalized within the first three or four days of experiencing symptoms. Now, the virus tends to hide in your body for a day or two before you realize you have it. And so it's more like, you know, probably four or five, six days after you actually have the thing. But the point is, after you start experiencing symptoms, you're probably going to be hospitalized relatively shortly after that, which means that if we're continuing to look at this thing and continuing to see our numbers decline, that's really good news because it means that the state as a whole is just not getting sick on a regular basis. And I want to say that I'm not sure exactly what all the explanations for that. It may be because we've just handled it exceptionally well. It could also be, and I think that this is more likely the answer, the fact that things are starting to warm up. And as we've learned from this thing recently through new research, the virus does not survive long in sun. It just doesn't. I mean, even in, in droplet form, even if it has some moisture to kind of protect it, this thing can only last at max a couple minutes in the sun. And so the fact that Alabama is a very sunny, hot state <laughs> is actually working in its favor. I don't really understand why humidity also fights it. I just personally don't understand that. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a microbiologist. But apparently humidity also helps with combating this thing. And, and when you think hot and humid, I mean, Alabama ought to be one of the first places that comes to your mind. It's like the Amazon us. <laughs> that's, that's about how it is. So uh, we actually should be in good way there. And this is one of the very, very rare occasions that Caleb, who really likes it cold, 
is saying, bring on the sun, bring on the heat, bring on the humidity. Hopefully that will greatly aid us in preventing the spread of this thing. Another really fascinating thing that happened in the state of Alabama, which I find just hysterical on a number of levels, and, and partly because I just find big government stepping on its own toes amusing. So there is a law now that Birmingham, in Birmingham, you must wear a mask in public. In other words, if you're outside your car, if you're going to be either in places of business or just walking around on the street, you are required by law to be wearing a mask. Now, I think that it's personally, especially if you're going to be outside for any length of time, I personally think it's actually a really good idea to wear a mask. I am not anti-wearing a mask. I think that that's probably the right thing to do. What I do find hilarious about this, though, is that A, they're actually requiring it by law, and B, and this is the real kicker, it is actually illegal to wear a mask in the state of Alabama. If you are in public and you are wearing a mask, you are in violation of state law. I learned this specifically because I almost got arrested for it at one point. Uh, I won't go into great detail, but suffice it to say it was a fraternity event, and I had my entire face covered because that was part of the event, and the police officer informed us that there was a law in the state of Alabama, and there are no stipulations, just literally just covering your face in public is enough to be in violation of a state law here in the state of Alabama. And another thing that's funny about that is that was reinforced, and I actually checked up on it again later because you may recall that one of the protesters with the Black Lives Matter, I don't know if it was like a local chapter or exactly how that works, but one of the guys that was protesting last year in Birmingham, and it was uh, protesting right after that deal happened at the Galleria when police officers took down someone they suspected of being a gunman. I won't go into all of that and rehash it now, but suffice it to say one of the protesters was wearing a mask during the protest, and they arrested him for doing so. And so I looked it up, and that law still, 72 years later, it's a pretty old law, but it's still there, still on the books. And so now Birmingham has passed a law that requires you to wear a mask, even though it's illegal <laughs> to wear to cover your face in public in the state of Alabama. So uh, the government stepping on its own toes. Now, personally, I'll say this. I think both laws are dumb. I think it's stupid to require you to wear a mask, even though I think it's a good idea. I think it's stupid for there to be a law against you covering your face in public. Those are both really dumb laws. That should be something that is left up to the individual. But I don't know, I just found that whole scenario quite amusing. Uh, another thing that happened the other day, and this actually deals with our sister station, Talk 99.5 up in Birmingham with Matt Murphy, uh, a friend of mine and also one of our sister stations up there in Birmingham with Cumulus, Dr. Harris, Scott Harris, who is one of the people on the task force for everything that's going on and how the state of Alabama is handling this, he did an interview with Matt Murphy yesterday and uh, was talking specifically about the new orders and, and some of the changes. And one of the things that he got hung up on was the churches. And the fact that churches, there has been no change to them. They are opening up some more retail stores, but when it comes to restaurants and churches, they effectively re remain exactly the same as they were before the new orders were brought up. That was kind of the talking point that I brought up yesterday on the show, that 
the order really didn't change very much if you're actually looking at how much it affected and impacted what all was going on. And so this is Scott Harris defending some of those decisions yesterday on 99.5. Have you been to Home Depot or Lowe's lately? Uh, yeah, I was there um, maybe a weekend, uh, weekend before. You, you've seen the activity going on there? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people in the parking lot. Yeah. Help, help me understand why or was there a consideration with regard to, for example, churches? Why, how, can, how is it that you don't feel that churches can maintain a six-feet distance in interrelations in their sanctuaries but a Walmart or a Home Depot can. Yeah, I, I I don't think I would I would make that statement in that way. I I think churches are um, um, something that the governor has made clear she wants information on. I know you probably saw yesterday she has I think it's her own pastor, uh, but she has a group of people involved in trying to make guidelines about about when churches need to resume activity. I, I would say that. Um, Clearly, uh, it, it's probably true. At least, as I've you know gone to church, that it, it's a little bit different environment. There is um, a lot more um, contact. You know, people hug each other and shake hands and, and kiss. Well, hold on, hold on. I'm not interrupting you, but there, does, there doesn't have to be. Uh, that, right, there, there doesn't have to be. But but practically speaking, I, I think there is. I mean, you know, there. Do, I think changing human behavior is, is actually what all health orders are about. Well, guess what? There, there naturally has to be human interaction and uh, and human contact at Walmart and at Home Depot too, Doctor. I mean, I mean, so I mean, we're we're in the business of picking winners and losers with this new order. Well, I I, I still think that it's different in a in a church environment. I, I don't think that's the same kind of interaction that people have when they you know see strangers in a in a retail store. Um, it's it's just a, it's a little bit different environment. Uh, obviously, churches have to be back to normal. We have to get that back open again as soon as possible. But some of our you know more significant outbreaks we have seen have been in, in the setting of, of those kind of things or, or funerals, for example. We, look, no, nobody thinks that you know Alabamians are going to go forever without having marriages and having funerals and and having worship services. And so clearly, that's got to that's got to change. Uh, but you know, it's uh, it's really difficult to get people to stay six feet apart and, and wear a mask and not touch each other, no matter what. And it's particularly hard, you know, in in those kind of services. Does Doctor Harris just assume that every churchgoer is a moron? I mean, seriously, just looking at that statement on its surface, I don't see how you can hear Doctor Harris say that and not assume that he just thinks that everybody that goes to church is an idiot. And I know that he wouldn't phrase it that way, and I don't think that there was any malicious intent behind it, but effectively, that is what he is saying. He is saying that these, you know, churches, a lot of churches, especially in Alabama, are very big buildings, there's lots of space, you can spread out. I realize some aren't necessarily that way, but you could also say the same for some retail stores. Some retail stores are really tiny. But anyway, in trying to defend the fact that let's leave retail stores open, let's close up churches and make sure that they can't have any more than 10 people, even if they have a gigantic building. I mean, if you looked at Fraser and Montgomery, you could fit, you know, a ridiculous number of people in there. It would be something comparable to a high school football stadium, 
and which I mean is also close and I understand that. Uh, but something that would be comparable to that, but we're not going to open it because we just don't believe that they can social distance and don't trust them. He really thinks that in the middle of this, that church members would just go up to one another and shake each other's hand and hug one another and kiss one another, which is what he said. Those were his words in the middle of this whole thing. I mean, maybe there's a handful of people that would, but do you really think that those people are going to behave responsibly otherwise or in other settings? It doesn't make any sense. I, he just seems to have no faith that the average faith goer or the, the average church goer, the average person of faith can walk into their place of worship and just not shake hands with people. Like, does he, does he really think we're a bunch of four-year-olds? Because it's realistic to say that a bunch of three or four-year-olds, you put them in a room together, they're, they're just going to like run up against each other and touch one another because they're children and they lack good judgment. Even in the middle of this thing, kids would tend to do that. We're not kids, we're adults. We can make those decisions on our own. And the thing that is so ridiculous is that, because he tries to make this thing, well, that's a little different than running into strangers in a retail establishment. Let's compare those experiences, shall we? And I'm perfectly comfortable doing that, by the way. If I were to go to church, and I'm actually self-quarantining, watching live streams, I'm not even suggesting that my church personally open up yet. I don't think it's quite time. Doesn't matter. Still think that it's their decision, and they should have the right to make that decision on their own, regardless. I've already said that 10,000 times on this show. I'm just saying it one more time to clarify for anyone that hasn't heard it before. If that were to happen at my congregation of Dalreda, if they opened up and I decided to go to church, what I would do is go into the auditorium straight from my truck. I would sit down in a pew that has not been used for a week. And remember, this thing does not live on surface, surfaces, but at the maximum four days. And that's, you know, if, if we haven't been there for a week, or even if we had done Wednesday night Bible study, that's still four days. So... I would go into a pew that has not been used by anybody else for a week. There would be hymnals, even though we don't really use those because there's a PowerPoint. The only thing that could be a point of contention would be when they pass out the Lord's Supper, but they could wear gloves doing that. Here recently, I've seen a lot of congregations, including my own, even though there's only like four people there because it's just the men leading the service. Uh, but they, they actually put the bread in individual cups as well as the fruit of the vine. And each of the people there that are serving are, are wearing gloves when they carry the tray. And here's another thing, too, another option. I have, for the past several weeks, been using the bread and the fruit of the vine that I have been keeping in my house and just watching live stream services and doing it that way. Well, I also have the option of bringing it to church. I would actually, if, if I were going to do that, I would bring my own little bottle of grape juice and my own piece of bread so that they wouldn't even have to serve me. And so the only quote-unquote point of contact that would happen serving the Lord's Supper, and I know most congregations don't even do that every week, but uh, if they were going to do that and do it every week the way we do, the, the way that the Scripture prescribes, then I would not even do that. I would just bring my own, and I would serve myself. That's the thing that Dr. Scott Harris doesn't seem to understand. It can be done responsibly. And the case that he's trying to make is that people 
at Home Depot, people at Walmart, people at all the big box stores that have remained open all that time, we can trust them to be responsible. We can't trust church people to be responsible. And the point Matt Murphy is saying, I can see in real time that that is not happening. Now, granted, Murphy apparently has been to Home Depot. I can't speak to that because I've not been out to my local hardware store or Walmart or, or wherever else because I've been self-quarantined. He's been out and about a little bit. I haven't. But based on his testimony and what he's talking about there, he's like, I'm there. They're not doing it. And so you can't make the argument that people can congregate at a real retail establishment and do so safely, and they can't do it safely at a church, and that's the reason we have to shut the churches down. Now, you might be able to make the case that it's too dangerous and we need to shut all of them down, or that it's not dangerous enough to justify shutting them down, but you cannot make the case that we need to open one, but not the other. That's the problem that you're running into. And the difference in that in a retail establishment is also, let's remember, I could basically, as I just laid out, do the entire church experience and worship without ever coming into point of contact with anybody else. That is impossible at a retail establishment. Because at some point, I have to touch items to gather them, even if I'm not using a cart, which is another hazard, even if I'm not using a basket, which is another hazard. I still have to, at some point, grab items off of a shelf and gather them together so that I can pay for them. That is a hazard because I don't know who else has touched those items before I got to them. I don't. So there's a point of contact right there. And then at some point, I have to figure out a way to pay for it. And even though businesses are taking precautions and trying to do it safely, and I commend them for that, I have to interact with a cashier or a screen at some point. I either have to touch a screen that other people have touched, or I have to interact with a cashier and come up with some form of payment. I can pay with a debit card, but that means I have to touch a touchpad that everybody else has touched. That means I would have to, you know, hand them a, a, a check or money or something. At some point, I have to make contact. That's what I'm saying. If you're comparing the two, church is actually the safer of the two, yet we're saying, oh, well, we've got to keep grocery stores open. We've got to keep Home Depot open. Church that's non-essential, let's not worry about it. Even though actually, comparing the experiences, church is the safer one to do. But I guess we can't be trusted because church people, we're like animals, we can't help ourselves, we just have to go up and hug one another whenever we see each other. And by the way, I love my church family, not really a touchy-feely person, I can personally attest to the fact you do not have to hug people at church. <laughs> Done it many times, I... I shake a lot of hands at church, even though I could stop doing that. And by the way, when I have been sick before, have done that. When I was immune uh, deficiency compromised, when I was on chemo, did do that. It can be done because people can be responsible. And the second part of this, I did want to play this last little bit because it's basically, a, it's a different scenario, but he's making if you boil it down exactly the same argument, this is when he was asked about restaurants and them not being allowed to open either. Restaurants um, have been, uh, you know, obviously hard hit. The service industry, restaurants, bars, breweries, and th those types of establishments. Uh, you're, you continue the order that on-site premise uh, uh, consumption of food or beverage is not allowed. Uh, help me understand why. 
Yeah, I, I think I think restaurants and also uh, and bars in particular are, are places where people spend a lot of time. They you know typically not certainly don't have to be indoors, but typically are indoors. Um, it's it's a pretty common place for people to meet who aren't in the same family, and, and people you know literally are sharing you know food or maybe even drinks. They they literally are sharing things they're consuming, and restaurants are are a higher risk category you know than say your regular retail store for based on what research um, sir oh my i think it's just common sense if you're a physician and you understand how disease gets transmitted i think i think everybody would agree with that then why are you i mean so all right so you're saying that it's common sense that restaurants are naturally prone to more social i mean to, to more interaction all right yeah i, I think that's correct so Dr. Harris also trying to make the case that restaurants are extremely dangerous and more so than a retail establishment. Again, I think you could make the case that it's too dangerous and we have to shut it all down, or you could make the case that we can leave both open, but you cannot make the case that one is too dangerous, the other one is not. So a couple things I wanted to break down in that one really quick. First of all, it just really goes back to what I said with the church thing. Does he assume we're all morons? Does he really assume that the people of Alabama are so incredibly stupid that they're just going to meet up with people that they have not normally been meeting up with and otherwise people that they don't live with, they've not come in contact with, they're just going to meet up for a casual lunch and share each other's food and drinks? That doesn't make any sense. Are they, why would they do that? And maybe some people would. I don't know. I think at that point you almost get to where uh, it, it's the Darwin Awards and let nature take its course. But in all of that, he just assumes that we're all a bunch of idiots, that we would just share lunch or share drinks with coworkers. I don't ever remember sharing a drink with anyone at a restaurant, ever. Because it's a restaurant, they can bring you another one. <laughs> like I, I don't know who he's eating with, but even close members of my family or when I'm with a date... Uh, which, I mean, you know, with a date, somebody that I kiss, I don't even share a drink with. That's weird. I, I might share a drink if we were, you know, out hiking or something, and I'm the only one with a water bottle, but I certainly don't do it in a restaurant. That's just strange. And what's happening here is none of the stuff he's saying makes sense. He's just floundering to come up with a justification for a policy that doesn't make sense. That's what's actually going on here. Matt is confronting him with basic logic and reason, and Dr. Harris doesn't really have a good answer for why these things are prohibited, which is basically the case that I made yesterday. And I, I love that the response is, when he's asking, uh, based on what research, he's like, well, just, just based on common sense. So he's using common sense as a replacement for data. Why are restaurants higher risk? Well, just common sense. Well, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think that if you're in a restaurant, and I actually talked about this yesterday when KIV made the new order, where are you more at risk? When you walk into an eating establishment, the hostess takes you to a booth, one that has been sanitized, and restaurants would be able to do that, takes you to a booth, brings you all of your food and drink, and goes back to the kitchen. The only interaction you have to have is with the waitress. Now, there is a point of contact there. But, you know, between you and the waitress and, I don't know, maybe the cook back there, but I would assume that they're following normal practices to keep people getting infected from their food, you don't have to interact with anybody else. Like I said, when you pick anything off of a shelf at a retail establishment, 
God only knows how many other people have touched that thing. When you have to interact either with a touchscreen or with a, a pad to be able to pay your bill with your debit card or any of those other things at a grocery store, you could make the case that that one is significantly more dangerous. I don't have a problem with you saying that we need to leave these businesses open. What I'm saying is it makes no sense to close down one and not the other. And I love the arrogance that came out of Dr. Harris there. And I've never had a problem with Dr. Harris really before this clip. But he says, well, when you're a doctor, you understand how these things are spread. Are you kidding me? Seriously? Do you really think that we're all stupid and don't know that these things can spread through what you're talking about? I don't know any person that would make the case that disease cannot be spread by sharing your drink or sharing food with, with somebody else. We all understand that. We can take our own precautions. Just the arrogance of that, of that when, when asked to present some data, is like, well, when you're, when you're a physician, you understand how these things are spread. He's making an argument of authority, which is by far the weakest form of logical appeal, and it's almost always one that is used as a cover in the absence of actual data, which is what's going on here. He can talk about being an expert and talk about being a person that has insight in it, but if you're the expert, if you actually have the data, show your work. Don't flash your PhD in my face, because your PhD doesn't automatically make you right. Now, I'm sure that Dr. Harris understands far more about diseases and everything else than I do. I get that. But that doesn't mean that he's going to automatically be right on all of the assumptions that he's making there. That's ridiculous. If you have a good reason for explaining why a restaurant or a church building is significantly more dangerous when it comes to infection than a retail establishment, okay, make that case. And don't just say, well, it's common sense every time I ask for some clarification or some kind of data. I think that that's a fair standard to have. And I also wanted to point out, and this is a, a small point, but I do think it's an important one. He said with the restaurants, well, not all of them are indoors, but most are indoors. Okay, well, what about the ones that are outdoors? Even if you wanted to make the case that restaurants are significantly more dangerous and they naturally lend themselves to infection more so than retail establishments, which is a case I don't believe you can make, even if you could make that case, why would you make the case that there can't be an ex exception for dining outside? Why? Why couldn't you make the case that for places that have an outside, like, uh, uh, what's that place? Little Donkey, that is down there in East Chase, a Mexican restaurant. They've got an outside patio where you can dine outside. Why not do that? Capital Oyster Bar, longtime sponsor of Cumulus, really good guy that owns it. They have giant outdoor dining areas. Why can't they open? Shrimp Basket, you know, the Shrimp Basket in, in Gulf Shores and also the one in Auburn, there's, there's one in Montgomery too, I think on Vaughn, but I honestly don't remember if they have an open, open air dining place or not. Mama Goldberg's in Auburn, giant outdoor eating facility. Lulu's in Mobile, I mean, I could go on and on and on about this. Even if you could make the case that restaurants were significantly more dangerous, you basically just admitted that the ones that are outside are not. So why did the new rules not have an exception for outside dining? Because that, I would think, is fair, actually. If you had said, okay, we're going to let you dine outside, but you need to be able to do it outside, and I've got a restaurant that's indoors only, I start moving tables out into the parking lot. 
because that way everybody else is safer. That's a compromise. I can still stay in business. I can still pull in some revenue. I can still serve my customers, but do so with some common sense things. And this is why I say it ought to be left to the individual. Because if restaurants had been allowed to stay open, I guarantee you there would already be people that were doing that. I would guarantee you there would be restaurants that were staying open, but serving everybody out there in the, uh, in the sunlight and moving things out into the parking lot so that they could eat there. I guarantee you that would have already happened if they had left it up to the individual restaurants. But they didn't leave the option open. They just said, no, you will comply. Ultimately, what this all boils down to is that Dr. Harris's conclusions are based on two faulty assumptions. One is that government action somehow makes an irresponsible person responsible. I agree. There are probably some people that are flipping about it, that don't care about it, that aren't going to adhere to the guidelines at church, that would go around and, you know, feel fine shaking everybody's hand. And that's a dumb thing to do right now. You know what? Your government action isn't stopping that person from being irresponsible. That person is being irresponsible, maybe not at worship, but everywhere else. That person is still continuing to do the same thing, probably at Home Depot and probably at Walmart and Lowe's and all of the other places that are still open. Government action does not make an irresponsible person responsible. People in government want to feel like they're at the control board and that they can just sort of manipulate society and change human behavior. He even said in the clip earlier, the first clip we played, that this policy is supposed to change human behavior. Well, guidelines might, suggesting that now is a really dangerous time to do some of those things might, and, and by the way has, and by the way did so long before the shutdown was an order, but as far as a government edict just making a irresponsible person that's flippant and doesn't care suddenly responsible, I'm sorry, that ain't going to happen. And shutting down churches and restaurants is also not going to make that happen. Government officials feel like they have a lot of control over people and how they behave and how they live. They really just don't. And I really do think they just like feeling like their hand is on the lever of power when it's really not. The second big incorrect assumption that he makes is that it is the government's job to protect people from their own bad behavior. Like I was saying a second ago, there are going to be irresponsible people, regardless of what you do. No amount of government's policy is going to make people responsible. But you know what? Even if they do act responsibly and they get sick, that's their fault. And they deserve what they get. I'm for the maximum amount of freedom coupled with the maximum amount of responsibility. If you want to go out and shake hands and, and hug everybody and all of that stuff and share food with somebody at a restaurant, you may be an idiot, but you're going to get sick and you're going to pay the consequences for that. I'm going to stay in my house and self-quarantine. And that's going to greatly limit the chances of me getting sick. Maximum freedom, maximum amount of responsibility. That should have been the policy from the very beginning. Ultimately, this boils down to, I trust people to act in their own self-interest. You're occasionally going to have people that are idiots, like we saw uh, with the whole thing with spring break, where there were people that even though this epidemic was starting, they decided to just trot themselves out and hang out in giant crowds, which was one of the dumbest things that you could do. But again, government action didn't change that. And ultimately, the vast majority of people didn't do that. They did act in their self-interest. I work with college kids every day. There were some that were dumb and went ahead and went forward with their spring break plans. Most of them 
did not. And so even if you don't think that the average person is good and altruistic and, and looking out for other people, people looking out even for their own self-interest is going to curtail a lot of their irresponsible behavior. That's one of the core beliefs of a free society, that people acting in their own self-interest even is going to stop a lot of those problems from happening. I believe in that a lot more than Dr. Harris does, but even if I didn't, even if I didn't, I don't think that government action would have made much of a change anyway. I don't believe in big government. Apparently Dr. Harris really does and thinks it makes a big difference. Let's go ahead and go to another segment. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, I take a political test and do so live on air and, and provide commentary. It's the nine axis test, so really looking forward to that, and you'll get to see my reaction as the questions pop up. I've never seen these before. You, you, you'll see my reaction to them up, coming up in just a second. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. I thought we'd do something a little bit different today, something a little fun, which I think that we could take a little break from all of the coverage of the coronavirus. We've already done that today, so I wanted to go ahead and jump into something that's just, I don't know, a little more relaxed and a little bit more business as usual when it comes to political talk radio. I've, I've seen a lot of talk show hosts doing different political quizzes and that kind of thing, and I think those segments are kind of fun, so I'm going to do one that you probably haven't seen so far. It's called the Nine Axes Quiz, and essentially what it does is instead of giving you somewhere where you are on the political spectrum, whether it's the graph that, like, they had the political compass quiz that kind of made the rounds, and I don't know, it was kind of fun, but it was overly simplistic, and, and frankly, I don't think it gave very accurate readings, but, you know, these are things that are fun, and so we're going to take today what's known as the Nine Axes Quiz, and I'm going to take this live on air so you get to see my results uh, and, and this is completely impromptu. I haven't seen any of this. So basically, the way that this works, and you can see some of the description there, I encourage you to go back and read it for yourself. It, it takes these different values and asks you questions to help you understand whether you fall on this side or that side of a political value, and through that, sort of giving you a better idea of exactly where you stand when it comes to a lot of important political questions. Uh, there's a few that I agree with or disagree with, but we'll probably come across that as I'm taking this quiz anyway. So let's go ahead and get started. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and take the shorter version just for time's sake. I may take the longer version at some point, and if I do, I'll post my results and, and so you can see them on this uh on this video. So let's go ahead and just take the short 45 question version. I think that's going to be more than enough content. And uh, all of these do, I, I read in the description earlier that they go between uh, strongly agree and strongly disagree, which probably helps with the accuracy a little bit, but we'll just see how it goes. If you have nothing to hide, then you shouldn't care about the government having access to your communications. Okay, strongly disagree. Not a big fan of the NSA will or the NSA surveillance state. National cultures are important to protect. Mm. I'm gonna have to go with just kind of agree on that one because there are some cultures that really shouldn't be protected. 
I agree in a general sense that to preserve history and, and being a history buff myself, that there are certain things that we need to preserve just so that we have them for future reference. But as far as like, should we protect certain cultures? Well, no, some, some cultures are superior to others. And, you know, I, I'm even going to go to neutral or unsure just because you could make the case either way on that one. The elders in a society know the best path for it. Again, I don't think that's necessarily true. Age with age comes wisdom typically, but there's also some, you could make the case either way on that one. When people have already suffered for technology to be developed, we should use that technology. Well, I don't know. That depends. Is the technology good? I'm not sure. Like if, if you have a whole bunch of people that suffer in a medical trial, for example, and it turns out that the drug is only effective 50% of the time and has horrible side effects, then I would go with no. So I guess that depends on the technology. I don't know. P people suffering for it, to me, doesn't really sound like a reason that we ought to use the technology. So I'm going to go with disagree. We should be more accepting of other cultures. Are they, are they saying we is America? Because America's already insanely tolerant and accepting of other cultures. But again, it depends on the culture. If you want to talk about, for example, the pagan culture where they're sacrificing children to idols, then I would go with no. But if we're talking about maybe culture like, I don't know, J Japanese, uh, Japanese culture or uh, African culture, I mean, is I, I can see taking certain aspects of that culture and that being good. I, I don't mind sharing things like food and clothing and technology and all of those things. So, again, I, I think it depends on the culture, so I'm going to have to go with neutral. A nation should cooperate whenever it benefits them both. Well, yeah, I mean, mutually beneficial, mutually beneficial uh, relationships, that's what free trade is all about. Government should be as concerned about foreign citizens as they are about those within their borders. Um, I, I guess, yeah, I would go strongly agree. I mean, if there's an American citizen out there that's being mistreated, I mean, uh, look at the Marine that got stuck and, and was imprisoned wrongfully in Mexico for like over a hundred, I think it was over 200 days, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, was was that Sergeant Tamarisi, I believe? So yeah, I mean, government should absolutely be concerned about their citizens no matter where they are. Illegal immigrants have no benefits. Yeah, strongly agree. Strong states weaken a nation. Uh, strongly, strongly disagree in the highest possible sense. Strong states actually strengthen a nation. The freer the market, the freer the people. Again, strongly agree. Life, liberty, and property. I mean, really, a free market touches on all three of those basic core principles of freedom. So strongly agree. Having independent nations with the risk of global conflict creates a large threat to humanity as a whole. Um, no. Maybe? Again, it depends on the nation. I... Hmm. I, I think what it's trying to say here, and, and maybe I'm 
projecting a little bit, but I think what it's trying to say here is that having those independent nations, nations with a high level of independency, absent of like a UN or something like that, that's something that is very risky. Uh, no, I don't have a problem with a sovereign nation behaving like a sovereign nation. I don't think independency is a threat, and I think that's what they're trying to say, so I'm going to go with strongly disagree. Let's see. Religious clothing should be banned from public. Uh, no, I mean, I guess the only exception is public indecency, but so I, I might go to disagree instead of strongly disagree, but I'm very much in favor of religious freedom. You know what? I think I'm just going to go with strongly disagree because I can't at least come up with a scenario where there's a religion that has clothing that ought to be banned. As a general rule, I, I tend to err on the side of liberty anyway, so I'm going to go with strongly disagree. Human-caused climate change is currently one of our greatest threats to our way of life. Uh, no. Well, the, the political reaction to, to climate change is a grave threat to our way of life, yes, but the the climate, which I think is what it's getting at, the climate change itself being a threat to our way of life. I'm going to go with strongly disagree. Nations fighting among each other gets in the way of progress. Uh, see, that's another one that's vague, because how do you define progress? If you're defining progress the way a progressive would, in other words, like one world order, then, well, yeah, it absolutely gets in the way of it. But I don't know if that's what they mean by progress. If you're talking about human ingenuity, uh, to be honest, like it's an uncomfortable truth, but wartime has been some of the times where our technology advances the most. And a lot of the inventions that have been invented for war purposes tend to get repurposed later into other useful technology that can be used in peacetime. So if you're talking about scientific progress, then, I mean, it's... I don't know that it's necessarily worth the human toll, but wartime tends to actually advance technology quite a bit. So, uh, it's kind of vague, but I'm going to go with disagree just because, it, generally speaking, there, there are certain times where war can stifle technology and stifle progress, but it can also help it along, even though I don't necessarily know that it's worth it. I think that actually, when you're talking about human scientific and technological progress, war actually tends to kind of help along with that, which is a horrible thing to think about, but it's it's generally true. It's a good idea to test a policy in one state rather than implementing it nationwide right away. Oh my gosh, yes. Could not agree with that one more. Only those who served in the military should be able to gain power in government. No. I'm going to go with strongly disagree. I do wish that we had more veterans. Uh, right off the top of my head, guys like Dan Crenshaw, Representative Dan Crenshaw of Texas, Lee Zeldin of New York. Like, there are some great military veterans. And I think that we should have more veterans, frankly, in office. I think that that's one thing that the country used to do really well that it really doesn't anymore. So I agree that they should be more prevalent. But barring those that did not serve in the military, I mean, think about this. Yes, George Washington was a great leader, and his experience as a veteran and a general helped him out greatly with that. But what about Thomas Jefferson? What about John Adams, our second and third presidents? I had those backwards, but, you know, Adams and then Jefferson. They would have been barred from that, so I'm going to go with strongly disagree. 
genetic modification should be used rarely, if ever. Um, I'm going to go with no, especially since the use of GMOs is one of the only freaking things that the federal government and the CDC has ever said, uh, yeah, it doesn't cause cancer. Like, they think everything causes cancer. They think red meat causes cancer, like, or at the very least inconclusive. And every study they've done with GMOs, study after study after study, has shown that there is absolutely no risk that they can find associated with things like cancer, increase uh, in heart disease. There are a lot of things in agriculture, and, and keep in mind I have an ag degree from one of the greatest land-grant universities in the world. I have a ag degree, and so this is sort of my wheelhouse, and I've yet to see anything even somewhat conclusive that GMOs have a negative effect on people that consume them. There, there's a lot of things like pesticides that definitely can. GMOs are not one of them. In fact, GMOs allows us to use less pesticide and actually make food healthier in a lot of circumstances and, and have to use less chemical agents to do it. So uh, I think, if anything, we should be developing GMO te technology faster. So I'm going to go with a strongly disagree. A hierarchical state is best. Again, what does that mean? This is, this is one of the reasons I don't like taking some of these political quizzes is because, frankly, I already know, I've studied the ideas, I know where I stand, I, I'm not expecting any kind of surprises, and if it winds up being something that I disagree with in my results, then I'm, you know, I'm not going to suddenly change my beliefs. I, I already know where I stand on this, and that's the reason I find these fun, but usually more or less pointless. Uh, hierarchical state, are they talking about a class system like in federalism? Or, sorry, feudalism? Because I disagree with that, obviously. But if they're talking about just people making more money than others, like, that's... I, I don't... The question is way too vague to be able to answer, so I'm going to have to go with neutral. It is better to maintain a balanced budget than to ensure welfare for all citizens. Oh, strongly, strongly, strongly disagree. Or, sorry, strongly agree. <laughs> Ooh, almost messed up there. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely better to balance the budget and live within our means rather than just provide welfare for everybody. In the modern era, militaries aren't really necessary. Um, no, strongly disagree. In fact, the modern era is as peaceful as it is because we do have a strong military. I support gay marriage. Again, this one's vague, because when you say support gay marriage, are you talking about state-sanctioned marriage? Because I'm against that, and I'm also against state-sanctioned heterosexual marriage. If you're talking about, do I think that we ought to have uh, people outlawing gay marriage, then I would have to say no. This is a church issue. This is not a state issue. And so, again, this is another example of a question where they say, it's vague. It's, it's so vague that I have no idea how my answer is going to reflect my actual beliefs on this. So I disagree, gay marriage. I disagree with gay marriage. I think it's horribly immoral, but if you're asking me on political grounds, I don't think it should be banned. I just think that there should be no such thing as legal marriage. So I, I don't know how to answer this one. The way that the question is worded, I'm going to take it as though it means from a moral standpoint. But if I answer based on a moral standpoint, I'm not giving an accurate representation of my political beliefs. So I really don't know. Like, I may just have to go with neutral again because it's just so insanely vague. This is one of the reasons, like I said, that these tests are, are kind of frustrating for me.
it is necessary for the government to intervene in the economy to protect consumers. Um, there are a handful of extremely rare circumstances where I do believe the government need. I don't not at the federal level. Let me make that clear. <laughs> Uh, states do have to intervene. In fact, the Department of Agriculture here in Alabama, I've toured their facilities where they inspect certain things like canned goods. And um, th there is there is a place for it, but it should be extremely rare, extremely limited, and the government should try, try to stay out of the way as much as possible. Because remember, in a free market system, there is specifically a profit motive for companies to protect their consumers. And beyond that, there is also repercussions for them if they do not through the legal system. So I'm going to go with disagree. I, I can't quite get all the way to strongly disagree, but uh, a, a very, very limited amount of government intervention in things that, that deal with, you know, perhaps health or something like that. I don't know. But again, the, the wording's a little off because is it necessary? I don't know that it's necessary. In fact, right now, with all the coronavirus things going on, I was going to cover this at some point, that I believe it's Wyoming that actually has completely done away with the USDA food inspection for neighbors that want to just buy meat or, or buy other products from neighbors, at least in low-risk categories. So, I don't know. Um I'm batting back and forth between disagree and strongly disagree, but because I'm batting back and forth, I think that means that I have to go with disagree. Catering to popular opinion is detrimental to a nation. Mm. In general, that is true. But sometimes popular opinion is popular for a reason. So I'm going to go with agree because... I agree with it in most cases. Unfortunately, popular opinion usually sucks, and so I'm going to go with agree on that one. Police should be regulated more. Well, more than what? More than they are now? Because I don't think they necessarily should be regulated more than they are now. I think that police should definitely be regulated. Like, that's obvious. So, again, it's, it's so vague, I'm going to have to go with neutral. Only extremely talented immigrants, if that, should be permitted to enter the country. I don't want to go with strongly agree, because I think that you don't necessarily, like, I, I don't think you have to have a 4.0 as you're graduating, in your graduating class of grad students to be able to be allowed into the country. But I do think that we need a merit-based immigration system. I think the way that we have it now, where basically... Um, some guy that has absolutely nothing to contribute to the country but happens to be related as a distant cousin to somebody that is a citizen gets priority over somebody that is extremely talented and would be coming here for a job. So I'm going to go with agree, but I I do agree, but I don't think that it should be the only criteria. I'll put it that way. People should think of themselves as citizens of their nation rather than their state. Oh, strongly. I, I, both. You know what? I'm going to go with strongly disagree because the answer is both. The answer is not, I think you should think of yourself as more of a citizen of your state than a citizen of the country. 
I just think that they should be equal. I'm a citizen of the state of Alabama, and I'm a citizen of the United States of America. I don't think of myself as more American than Alabamian or, or vice versa. I am a part of a state that is a part of a confederation of a nation known as the United States of America. Ergo, I'm going to go with disagree because I think they should be on even playing fields. And the way that the question is worded, that's how I would, that's how I would categorize it. The internet should be banned. <laughs> strongly disagree. Uh, the reason I'm able to talk to you right now is for the internet, so I'm going to go with strongly disagree. <laughs> the general populace makes poor decisions. Yep, strongly agree. I don't even think I have to explain that one. There should not be international law. Strongly agree. Hmm. Yeah, strongly agree. I couldn't come up with a way to justify giving anything less than strongly agree. No international law. The government should have access to the emails of suspected terrorists. Suspected terrorists, yeah. I don't want people rifling through regular people's emails to try to find the terrorists, but yeah, I agree with that. All right, question 31. Local governments can understand their citizens better than they could the uh, sorry, better than the national government could. Oh yeah, strongly agree. Let's see, war usually leads to worse outcomes. Well, I Again, this, this is one that it's so vague, I don't really know how to answer. Because war is what stopped Nazism, for example. So, was the better outcome to just not go to war and let Germany take over Europe and, you know, engage in the Holocaust and take over France and all of those things? I'm very isolationist to a great degree, but I think there are some very notable, very real exceptions and so it's, it's one of those things I go back to some of the questions I was answering before. It depends on the war. If you're talking about World War, II, World War II, then no. I think going to war was the right thing to do. But at the same time, it depends on how you look at it. That war absolutely devastated Europe. So Germany going to war was obviously a bad idea. Japan going to war was obviously a bad idea. But America co going to war in response to that was the right thing to do. And so it depends on the war and it also depends on the perspective. Was it defensive? Was it aggressive? There's like a thousand different factors going into that. So I'm going to go with agree, but I barely made it above the threshold to go with neutral because war almost always leads to bad outcomes. It certainly has in more recent years, but there, there's some notable exceptions, I'll put it that way. A nation usually needs to, or sorry, a nation usually needs a military in order to survive. Yeah, strongly agree. The government should not break up monopolies. Monopolies are one of those extremely rare cases where I think there does need to be some intervention if you do have a true sustained monopoly, but the thing is, as Thomas Sowell once said in Basic Economics, you have to remember that competition is a stubborn weed, not a delicate flower. And so a monopoly 
that isn't government sanctioned and doesn't have the backing of a government almost never lasts for very long because there's almost always another company that comes in. Yeah, they may be able to, to be able to go in and set prices essentially to anything that they want for a while, but eventually, and by eventually, I mean within the span of a couple of years, maybe at the absolute most, competition comes in. Uh, I could give a thousand examples here, but for time's sake, I'm not going to, but the only sustained monopolies really that people constantly cite in history were ones that had the backing of the government. And so the only way that a monopoly really can be sustained for a long period of time is if the government stamps out their competition, not them. So with that one, I'm going to go with strongly agree because I can't justify working it down to just an agree. So government should not break up monopolies. Theocracy is a good system of government. Um, with the exception of Israel, I can't think of a single successful theocracy at any point in history. And even that one was rife with problems. So I'm going to go with disagree. I can think of one really notable exception. Yeah, disagree. Wait, how was that worded? Theocracy is a good system of government. Yeah, okay, disagree. Just making sure I had it worded right. We have no right to military uh, to militarily in, uh, intervene in other nations. In general, that's true. Yeah, I would go strongly agree. There are exceptions, like if we're attacked or something like that. I kind of already went over that, so I agree in general. Children should be educated in religious values. Well, again... This is this goes back to do I look at it from a moral perspective or a political perspective? Because if we're talking about a moral perspective, then yes, absolutely. I, I think that it's, you know, bordering on child abuse not to. I, that might be a little bit too strong. But as far as actually educating a child and, and bringing up a child in the way that they should go, that's a biblical command. And so I think that every child should grow up learning religious values. And even if the parents don't agree... I don't think that the children should be, of course, forced into that kind of education, but I think that it's a good idea for them to even educate their own children on religious values, even if they don't agree with them or don't believe in God because they are the best values. Now, do I think that the state should be handling that? And do I think that the state should be forcing that education on people? No. So again, do I go with what I believe as far as what I think is morally correct? Or should I go with what I believe politically? Because my political answer would be strongly disagree. My moral answer would be strongly agree. This is one of the reasons that, like I said, I find these tests somewhat taxing. I'm, I'm going to go with agree. I'm just afraid that this answer is going to be taken as, I think that there should be like church-sanctioned schools run by the government and taxpayer funded or something like that, that that's, the, that's what they're meaning by that. I don't believe that. This may be one of those that's so vague I have to go with neutral. Because I, I think they obviously should. I tell you what, I'm going to justify going with agree because I wouldn't have a problem with a government-funded school teaching children religious values. I would have an issue with them teaching them religion as like the only way but if you're talking about just having a comparative religion class, I don't see an issue with that being in a state school or a government school. 
I don't have a problem with them reading things that are written by atheists or even arguments against religion. So, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and go with agree. Let's see. Border protection is important. Strongly agree. People's freedom should have no limits. Pretty much, yeah. Um, again, that's so vague that are you talking about anarchy? Because I'm obviously not in favor of anarchy. I think that freedom should have no limits with the exception of harming the freedom of another person, which in a lot of ways is the antithesis of freedom. Because if you kill somebody, you've robbed them of all their freedom. That's why we have laws in place to preserve liberty. So as far as that goes and understanding that a breach of that law, a breach of that correlative duty to a right would be a limit of freedom itself as opposed to an excess of it i would have to go with strongly agree i'm afraid that what they're looking at there though is is that that means that i would be in favor of anarchy which i'm obviously not again it's it's hard because you're basically guessing at what was in the person who created this quiz's head at the time that they wrote it I would say that freedom should have no limits, but obviously having certain laws in place that uh, preserve the life, liberty, and property of people against other people that might do them harm is liberty. I think that that actually is a freedom. So I would go with strongly agree, but I think that they're probably going to misinterpret that. Nobody but me can adequately represent my views. Hmm... I'm going to go with in principle, because there are people that I agree with a lot, but I can find something I disagree with with just about everybody. So I guess I'd go with strongly agree. I'm kind of surprised that that's in there. I don't understand what they're stabbing at with that one. The government must be by the people and for the people. Yeah. Laws should not be based on religion. Again, this is another one that's kind of sticky, because... When I look at laws and say, okay, what's the basis of this law? And they say, well, it should be a law because that's what the Bible says. Okay, you're going to need a different answer than that because as much as I love and respect and revere the Bible, it being against the Bible is not a reason to make a thing illegal. If that were the case, then lying would be illegal. If that were the case, then all manner of things that are legal would be illegal. Uh, lusting after a woman would be punishable uh, by law. So that's not... I I don't know. Uh, laws should definitely be based. The problem is when you go to the other extreme, there are also people that say a law should never be based on a religious principle. And my response to that is, but the Bible says stealing is wrong. So you think stealing should be legal? Like they don't, they, they have a, a myriad of self-contradiction when they do that. But I, I don't think that just because a law is found in a religious text or a religious doctrine or reflects a religious principle that it should automatically not be a law. That shouldn't be an argument against it being a law. But I also don't think that just because it's in a religious text that that means that it should be a law. So, again, it depends on what you mean by that. I think that laws should be somewhat based on religion, somewhat based on religious teaching, because otherwise there would be no such thing as, as law. I mean, basically every law that we have in this country with a handful of exceptions is somewhere has its roots back in the law of the Old Testament. And so 
I'm going to go with disagree, but I can't go to strongly disagree because I, I think that what they're thinking of when they go to strongly disagree is that person that basically says, well, if it's in a religious text, then it shouldn't be a law. And that's not the case. That That's not accurate. So I'm going to go with disagree. Let's see. Oppression by corporations is more of a concern than oppression by governments. Strongly disagree. In a free market, it is impossible for a corporation to oppress you. I, I can't even think of a scenario where a corporation can oppress freedom in a free market system because the only way that you would be compelled to engage with them is if you choose to do so. You, you can't. In, in, an, in a true free market, it would be impossible to be oppressed by a corporation or any other private citizen. So I'm going to go with strongly disagree. State and local laws should have precedence over national laws. Uh, yeah, strongly agree. It is very important to maintain law and order. Strongly agree. Okay, here's my results. And remember, this is the shorter version. I may take the longer one and post my results, but let's see how I did. Uh, I'm a fanatic federalist. That doesn't... Oh my gosh, a 100% on federalist. Yeah! All right. <laughs> uh, let's see. Neutral on democracy versus authority. See, I don't even get that one. That's a weird dichotomy to me anyway, because democracy can be authority. A democracy can be just as tyrannical as a monarchy is. I mean, you need to look no further than some of the writings of Plato and look at what happened with Socrates. I mean, that was a democracy that was subverting the law and taking away people's rights because the majority of people went along with it. That's what mob mentality is. And so I, I find that, I even find that category incorrect. The fact that democracy versus authority, it should be authority versus uh, liberty, I, I would think. So democracy is a, a bad antithesis to authority because de democracies can be very free and they also can be very authoritative. That's why America is not a democracy. That's why America is a republic. But anyway, all right, I'm a moderate isolationist. That's probably accurate. Um, I don't know if it's talking about militarily or from a market perspective because... I definitely am not a globalist on either one of those fronts, but I think that my percentages might be slightly different if we're talking about military versus market. Uh, I'm neutral on military versus pacifist. That's probably about right, honestly. And again, I think that I would... Hmm. I'm, I'm interested that I'm slightly more pacifist than military. That may be one that would change in the more detailed test let's see on security versus freedom i'm neutral oh that's not true at all like that one's completely wrong you can watch my coverage just of the past few weeks and tell that i am way more on the side of liberty than i am security again i think this is partly because some of those questions were insanely vague uh fanatical on markets okay that one's probably right also that's another one that i find the dichotomy completely incorrect markets versus equality well no in a free market everyone is equal everyone starts out equal everybody has the same ability to go out and make gain uh, equality is not the opposite of a market in fact a a true free market is equality and so that's a really dumb way to categorize these two different ones this 
this again is another indication that this was probably made by somebody on the political left. I don't think that they did a horrible job, but that that's a pretty big red flag that they were looking at things like welfare as equality when the exact opposite is actually true. If you're going to give money only to certain people from the government, if you're going to take uh, tax money from some citizens to give to other, that's the exact opposite of equality. So, uh, fanatic markets, I mean, it, it got me right on that one. I just think that that's a dumb dichotomy there. On uh, religious versus secular, again, this is probably because some of those questions that asked me on religion were very incorrect, because I'm guessing if they were able to actually dig deep, I'd probably be about 100% religious or darn close to it. So, again, that, that's one of those that I think the test probably did a pretty bad job on. Uh, let's see, neutral on progress versus tradition. That one's probably incorrect because I, again, I don't know what they mean by that. It's too vague. But I would probably, I would just sort of assumed that I would have come down a little bit harder on tradition. Not completely, but, you know, maybe a 60% tradition and instead I got 45. That's probably incorrect. Moderate assimilationalist. That's probably true. I do really like other cultures, and I love cultural uh, appropriation. That's one of my favorite things. I absolutely adore cultural appropriation. Uh, in fact, I've spent the vast majority of this quarantine watching anime. So <laughs> I'm a big fan of cultural appropriation. But yeah, that's probably more or less accurate. So this went, honestly, about the way that I expected it to. Um, looking at all those different results, uh, about what I would have guessed going into it, that it nailed me on some categories and it couldn't be further from the truth on a couple, and, and it got me more or less in the ballpark of where I would have assumed that I would wind up on most of the others. So, you know, just something to do for fun. Maybe check it out. Feel free to share your results either here in the comment section or if you want to talk about some of these things, feel free to do that as well. And uh, we'll be back to tactics in just a second. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, for whatever reason, when Vice President Pence actually visited the Mayo Clinic the other day, he was going through there, obviously related to the coronavirus, seeing some of the testing that they're doing and, and some of the patients that they're visiting with. <laughs> There's a uh, There was a pretty visceral reaction by the left to him not wearing a mask. And leading the charge on this, I think probably the funniest take that I found throughout this was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has the IQ of a potato and really puts that on display. And what's really hilarious to me, and part of the reason that I even decided to do this as my Daily Dose of Stupid today, what's really hilarious is watching a very dumb person make themselves sound dumb while calling another person dumb. I just, I don't know. I've always found that horribly amusing. And so here is AOC tweeting about the vice president's visit the other day where he did not wear a mask. So if you'll look, there's AOC's tweet where she says, 
when I warned everyone in February that Pence doesn't believe in science and shouldn't be in charge of COVID response, I meant it. But I admit I did not have VP visits COVID patients without wearing a mask on my bingo board. So that's AOC's hot take on that, which I just find hysterical for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, COVID, we, uh, the patients not wearing a mask, even if Pence was rifled and just uh, lousy with coronavirus, even if he was a walking coronavirus factory, it makes no sense to criticize him for not wearing a mask when he visits COVID patients. Why? Because the mask is not to protect him. The mask is to protect everybody else. That's what the mask does. It's supposed to prevent the likelihood of you transmitting the virus to another person. So it makes no sense to be protective of yourself when you're around COVID patients. Now, the thing is, COVID patients were not the only people he was around. And so it would be very easy for AOC to make the case that what he was doing was dangerous to other people in his presence, but she specifically says it's a danger <laughs> to the COVID patients, which are the only people he interacts with that would not be in danger even if he were not wearing a mask and was sneezing on them and had the coronavirus. <laughs> uh just remember this the next time that AOC tries to lecture somebody on being anti-science for not believing that the world is, like, going to end in 12 years, like she said earlier. <laughs> I try to do the uh, AOC impersonation, but I don't have gigantic anime eyes, so it's not good. I can do this, but that's about the extent of it. I can't do the bug eye thing that she does. <laughs> uh, but... Even if that were the case, like I said, AOC's comment makes no sense. But the thing is, even the people that don't have coronavirus, or presumably don't, would also not be harmed by this because Vice President Pence gave an explanation. When asked about this in an interview and said, well, Vice President Pence, you're in charge of the task force for fighting this thing. It's part of your guidelines that you should not that you should be wearing a mask because that prevents the spread of coronavirus to other people, why were you not wearing the mask? Pence gave a very logical answer, which is, well, I'd just been tested. He had just tested negative for coronavirus, which means he didn't have it, which means there's no reason for him to wear the mask. And what was really funny about this whole thing is that this was just such a common sense natural thing for Pence today. I mean, he just, he really handled that, that explanation. I like a pro when he was talking about it, because if you don't have it, there's no reason for you to wear the mask. Because like I said, the mask is not to keep you from getting sick. The mask is to keep other people from getting sick from you. And another thing to remember in all of this is that vice president or not, Pence is a politician. And politicians like to do photo ops. Now, you could make the argument, and by the way, a friend of mine made this argument, and I agreed with him, that maybe, if nothing else, just to set an example, that he should have worn the mask. Okay, I, I can buy that. That's a legitimate concern. That's a legitimate argument that since he is the head of the task force, since he was in a place where everybody else was wearing the mask, President Pence should have worn the mask, even if he knew that it wasn't going to do any good, if nothing else, to set an example for the rest of the nation. 
okay, I can buy that. If AOC had tweeted that out, I would have been still laughing at her because, I don't know, she's just a funny human being and she's not real bright. But the point is, she would have at least had a good point. That's not the point that she made. And Don Lemon also made the incorrect point last night when this happened. This was Don Lemon on CNN last night actually wearing a mask. And he didn't wear it through the whole school, the whole show last night, but he was wearing a mask to make a point on Pence. And I, I love the ticker tape down there, under there, that explains what's going on. Pence flouts Mayo Clinic's policy on mask, which is to wear one. Well, I don't know. Maybe that is Mayo Clinic's policy. Actually, I, I do know for a fact that that was their policy and they had masks provided there for the vice president. But what's funny on that is he just been tested. There was no reason for him to wear a mask. And the whole reason for Mayo Clinic's policy is to keep him from infecting other people, which again, could not happen because he had just tested negative for the thing. I, the, the obsession with trying to dunk on Pence... It's just a dumb thing that they all just went crazy about. And here's the funny thing, too. Let me see if I'm understanding this right from all the... Because I'm just a, a dumb conservative that doesn't understand science and hates science, even though I think that the science is correct on there being only two genders and for people in the womb that are actually human life, which is what the science leads us to believe. But remember, I'm just a dumb, mouth-breathing conservative that doesn't appreciate science and hates science. Uh, because I'm also religious, which means I'm anti-science as well. Uh, let me under see if I'm understanding you correctly, Don Lemon. Vice President Pence, even though he had just tested negative, and by the way, Don Lemon knew this because he actually played that same comment on his show last night. Vice President Pence, having just been tested, not wearing a mask, he's a danger to people around him. Don Lemon, sitting... I'm sure more than six feet away from everybody else in his TV studio wearing a mask that's protecting people somehow. Are you, you afraid you're going to transmit coronavirus through the, uh, the, the TV screen, which granted, I mean, I know it sounds crazy on its surface, but it's not all that far fetched. I mean, think about the last time you watched CNN. I mean, maybe it was three or four years ago, but the last time you watched CNN, you probably felt a little queasy too. I, I know I did. I watched it yesterday, and I was like, I felt sick the whole time. So that's Don Lemon's hot take on this. Now, to, to Don Lemon's credit, he did something that normally Don Lemon doesn't necessarily do, which is give the other side an opportunity to talk and explain himself. He did play President Pence, or sorry, Vice President Pence. He did play Vice President Pence's comments on this and his explanation of it live on the air to sort of give Pence a chance to defend himself. But... What he did say in rebuttal after hearing Pence explain this, he said, well, maybe he got a false negative. Well, probably not. And the thing is, with President Pence, he's the vice president. So he's probably, I know for a fact he's tested at least once a day because he's already said that. He's probably tested pretty much everywhere he goes and probably tested multiple times to rule out the odds of a negative. Now, the new tests that they have are incredibly accurate. There's a very, very high degree of accuracy. But I'm guessing they probably administered like at least two or three tests because he's the vice president. And by the way, this isn't a partisan thing. I'm sure they're doing exactly the same thing for people like Nancy Pelosi, other prominent Democrat senators like Chuck Schumer. I'm sure that they're having the same thing done for them too. But the idea that he's just assuming that Pence is doing this because he's an idiot, 
when Pence has a very legitimate excuse for why he didn't see the need to wear the mask is it's just it's obvious Don Lemon is just stretching for some way to somehow justify the outrage that he had at this initial story when he didn't have all of the facts. And so once Pence gives his explanation, he's trying to figure out a way to make himself right, even though new information has been presented, which is the I mean, really, it's the sign of a zealot and a crazy person. <laughs> And then another explanation that Don Lemon gave is that, well, Dr. Fauci a couple months ago was saying just because you tested negative today doesn't mean you're going to test negative tomorrow. Well, again, President Pence has probably tested every time he goes somewhere. <laughs> I mean, every time he sets his foot outside the door, they probably test the guy. So the idea that it's been 24 hours since Pence, first of all, again, like I said, that's not true. He's tested every single day. And he's also at a testing facility in the Mayo Clinic. For all we know, he got tested the second he walked in the door. We don't know. Uh, to assume some kind of ill intent or flippancy or whatever and try to make this into a big deal, that's really the media and the left doing something stupid. Like I said, you could maybe make the argument that it wasn't a great PR move and that if nothing else, just to be an example to other people, that Pence should have followed the Mayo Clinic's guidelines generally and worn the mask. I know that Pence didn't do that, or at least I'm, I'm speculating, but I can't think of any other good reason, that Pence probably made that decision because he wants the photo op, he wants his face there while he's visiting the Mayo Clinic. That's how politicians think. Heck, that's how I think. Remember that I also didn't wear a mask when I was on air at the protest a couple weeks ago because I'm on camera, and I'm willing to take that very tiny, minute risk that I wind up infecting someone, even though I don't see how that would have happened because I've been quarantined for 30 days prior to that, in order to have my face on the camera when I'm broadcasting. But Pence has an even better excuse than that. He had just been tested. So, again, it's, it's all stupid. You could make maybe a legitimate PR complaint here, and I don't think that's an unfair criticism to lob at the vice president. But as usual, the left completely overplayed their hand, made a huge deal out of nothing, and then they got caught with their pants around their ankles and had to figure out a way to justify their fake outrage that they had had just a few minutes prior before they had a good explanation. That's what happened here. So let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. As we continue our series in the book of 1 Samuel, we've now really entered the, the second third of the book. So there's the way that Samuel is structured, there's you're really broken up into three parts. You're broken up into the first part, which primarily focuses on Samuel and Eli and the time where Israel comes to the point where they want a king. And that was the lesson that we did the other day where Israel is demanding a king. Then you move into the transition period of Saul and Saul being king. And then the third part of the book of Samuel is the transition uh, that, that leads up into and, and where the primary focus of the story is on David. And they're not broken up into perfect thirds. They're not exactly the same, but it just gives you an idea that there's really three major parts, three big sections of the book of Samuel. And so what we're doing now is we're transitioning into that second phase where it's primarily focused on Saul and his kingship. 
So with this, we'll go ahead and switch over to 1 Samuel 9. Well, a little bit of context first, because I do want to bring this up, because Samuel has started his search for a king. That's another important part of this. So not only has Israel demanded a king, what we see earlier in this chapter is Samuel transitioning into starting to actually look for a king. He's, he's got his ear to the ground and his eyes forward trying to find someone who will be the Lord's anointed king. And then Saul, un, you know, not really thinking about this or thinking that he could be king, what's happened with him is he's out roaming around by himself because he has lost his father's donkeys and is trying to find them, you know, very humble beginnings for King Saul. And so he's wandering around with a servant trying to find the donkeys, and this is really the episode that we find ourselves in in 1 Samuel 9, verses 5 through 8. When they came to the land of Zerf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come and let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. He said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor all of the All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which I have sent out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For if the bread is gone from our sack and there is no present to bring the man of God, what do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver, I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. A couple really interesting things, because it's really easy to look back at this and, and to sort of corner off different Bible characters into categories of good guys and bad guys. And the truth is, sometimes the Bible itself even does this. It'll actually introduce a king of Israel, for example, as uh, blank began to rule at this time, and he did that which was evil in the sight of God, or blank began to reign at this time, and, and he did that in the time of this king, and, and he did that which was right in the sight of God. So sometimes the Bible even does that for us. But it's really easy for us to forget that these are real people. The Bible isn't just a storybook, and it's not just a character that has a white hat or a black hat, somebody that is specifically designed to be a hero or a villain. Saul is a person. And like people, he changes over time. This is when Saul is a young man. He's not king. He, he's not the uh, malevolent villain that we come to know a little bit later in this same book. Right now, Saul is just a young man trying to tend to his father's donkeys and, and go about his business as a very humble Benjamite living in Israel. And it's really interesting to see some of the things because there's a lot that I think this passage actually says about Saul's character in this particular passage. First of all, Saul sees it as very beneficial and actually seeks out God's counsel. It's not just that Saul is flipping about it or that uh, Saul just sort of disregards it. Saul is somebody seemingly that believes in God, that follows him, so far as we know, for all of Saul's flaws, and he does have many of them. Saul was not an idolater. Even though the vast majority of Israel at his time continued to have issues with idolatry, to my knowledge, there's never at any point a reference or a indication that we have that Saul, even though he was not always loyal or obedient to God, ever engaged in idolatry. So the fact that he is remaining monotheistic is probably something that's safe to assume here. 
And when this suggestion comes to him, it's like, let's consult with God. We, we, we're having this problem. Let's go to God first. You know what? That's an attitude that I really admire. I wish that I had it more, and I wish that other Christians had it more. That a practical, real-world problem, because, of course, you pray to God and, and go to him for spiritual issues as well as we should, but Saul is, is out there having a real-world problem. We're, we're having issues finding our livestock, and, and this is something that, especially back then, that was your livelihood. That's how you made your money. I'm, I'm not sure if these donkeys were just breeding donkeys that they sold to other people, or they were using for plowing, whatever it was. This was a thing of value that the family used as a part of their livelihood to sustain themselves. The donkeys go missing. They can't find them. What is the reaction? Let's go to God. Let's go to this prophet who happens to be in this city. We will inquire of him because he is a man of God and see what he has to say. And surely he'll lead us to whatever destination it is that we're, that we're trying to find. I mean, how much better would our lives be? And I'm, I'm preaching to myself here, believe me. Uh, prayer life is, is one thing that I honestly, to, to a certain degree, struggle with and, and wish that I did a lot better. How much better would our lives be if we took this same attitude that Saul has here? That when there's an issue, and, and you know, it wasn't Saul's suggestion, it was the, the servants, but Saul's readily, oh yeah, let, let, let's go, let's do that. That seems to be the thing that we need to do. That wherever we're having a problem in life, our first inclination is, let's go to God about it. Let's consult God. I want God's advice. This is something that we need to do. Because it would not be outside the realm of uh, possibility. It certainly wouldn't be something that would be foreign for Saul to dismiss this if he were not somebody that really believed in God's power. It would be easy for him to give the excuse, no, that's going to waste time. We're, we're already looking for the animals. This could give them time to get further away. Saul has a lot of confidence in God's power and, and confidence in his prophet. And that's the reason that he relents and says, yeah, let's head back to the city. We'll seek out God's favor. And, and once that happens, our problem will be solved. That's a pretty astounding amount of faith for the young Saul. And there's a second portion of this as well, which I think is equally, if not more important that even though this is something that Saul very much seemed ready, eager, and wanted to do, and saw it as something that was valuable and coveted and something that he should seek out, he also, because he understood its value, we need to show our appreciation. We need to do something to show that we appreciate God's help and God's favor with this. There is some kind of gift or offering that we need to offer up in return for seeking out God's wisdom. It's not like, you know, we're going to pay the guy off because they could have gone without a gift. That's also an option. But Saul thought it was something that was important to bring some kind of offering to not show up empty-handed. Especially in Jewish culture, this was really, really important. It's, it's, not, it's just not the same as it is today after the partition between man and God has been broken down by Christ that we really understand, because we're living in a very different spiritual culture as well as physical culture, that when you, you brought in a sacrifice for virtually everything back then, that if you're going to go to inquire of God, you need to have something in your hand. You don't show up empty-handed as a sign of both respect and appreciation. We need to have something that we're offering to God and show Him our gratitude for solving our problem and telling us where the donkey is, or where the donkeys are. 
that shows a really great attitude too. That's something that I think that we can learn from. That even though God doesn't quote-unquote need anything from us and we understand that what God gives us is the gift of grace, shouldn't we have a desire to not show up to God empty-handed? Shouldn't we, like the parable of the talents, for example, want to do work and and to do good and to help our brothers and sisters and to, to help the stranger? All of those things, shouldn't those be things that we should want to do? A, because God commanded it and it's the right thing to do, but B, so that we don't show up empty-handed, that when we are making requests and, and asking God things, it's not like an exchange, because in the same way that we can't work our way to salvation, we can't work our way to get God to do what, what He wants, but out of appreciation and respect for Him, we should want to not show up at the throne of grace with a request, knowing that we have been an unprofitable workman. Saul had that same attitude. If we're going to seek out God's help, we need to show up with something. We need to have some kind of gift in our hand that we can present to show our appreciation for what God has done for us in helping us with this problem that we're having. And I think if you were to sum up the real message behind this passage, it's that God's advice, God's counsel, and God's wisdom should be both valued and appreciated. And that is something that is true whether you're a Benjamite living in Israel 4,000 years ago, well, not quite that long, but uh, you know, a few thousand years ago, or whether you're living in America in 2020. That's something that has always been true and is always going to be true. That God's wisdom should be valued and we should show appreciation for him and for who he is and for his power and for his knowledge. Stay the course, friends. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast.